Some people didn't come to church in the dirt last week because they thought it's going to be too hot in the tent. And I'm like, have you ever been inside this room on a summer day? I think there were less flies out there than there are in here. So if you happen to go take communion this morning and there's like a fly on your cracker, just imagine it's a picnic. It's at a picnic, you'll eat it anyway. So it's okay. Jesus is still sovereign. We're going to clean it off with the gnats and the wine. <laughs> Alcohol's good for it. So, uh, a couple of things about about uh, planting roots and church in the dirt and all that kind of stuff, guys. I, I I was I think weird stuff in the shower before I come here in the morning. So I'm sitting in the shower and I'm, and I'm and, just go with me. So I'm sitting there and I'm and I'm and I was totally humbled because imagine this, uh, you know, we're we're finally you know making kind of permanent facility for us. And, and I mean, think about the graciousness of God in that, that we could actually be in a spot one day where you and I are like dead and gone and element continues on. I mean, that, that's, that's crazy to think about. And this, again, lets you know it's not about us. It's about Jesus, right? I mean, I mean think about if, you know, 40 years from now, you know, I mean, some of you, you'll just be like, yay, getting going. Most of us will be like, why am I still alive? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, 40 years from now, if you started thinking about that, and, and the people who, you know, come to know Jesus, you know, throughout, throughout the course of Element and all that kind of stuff, I, I think we're going to stand back and just be simply amazed. So, you know, th- thanks for, you know, being a part of it. You know, we're here in, in the beginning of it all. We get to see the beginning of it. And I think it's, it's, it's a humbling thing, uh, but also kind of a really cool thing as well. Um, and so a lot of people uh, talked about they didn't have a chance last week to fill out their commitment cards, didn't think about it. If you want to, uh, there's, we put them all the communion tables around the room. You can also do it online. Uh, Element Roots is the website we made just specifically for planting roots. And so if you want to, you can go there and, and fill one out online there as well. Um, also, um, people are asking about some other things called, like, gifts in kind. Like, they have, like, some stuff. Like, last week we talked about stuff. And it's like, somebody sent me a text. I went home and cleaned out my closet. I got all these boxes of stuff. What do I do with them? Well, uh, Element in a few weeks are gonna, is going to have a rummage sale. You're going to bring the stuff, and you're going to sell it. And I, got, and I know I got these things in the back of my mind. Cause, and this is going to sound sexist, and I'm really sorry. But I've seen you women do this. Okay? You show up to a rummage sale with a bunch of other people, and you start trading your stuff for their stuff. And you go home with the same amount of stuff you came with. Sell it all. Sell it all. Okay. Someone's car alarm is going off, by the way. You're welcome. Is that going to go whoop, whoop? No, I don't know. It's the, it's the car's joyful noise. Uh, so anyway, so we're going to do that. Uh, and so if, if you want to, you have a rummage cell, you bring your stuff to the rummage cell, you can do that. Uh, if you if you like, I can't really make it on that date, but you want to drop off stuff anyway, we will be having something for that so you can uh, drop some things off. Uh, also, we wanted everybody last week, my whole gospel community forgot to do this last week, uh, where if you caught element in your home, we wanted you to go out and take your thumbprint and put it on that, that tree. Uh, and so if you forgot about that, after service day, right outside, if you go out and put your thumbprint on the tree, you know, it'll be great. Again, 50 years from now, and we have that thing hung up, and people are like, what in the world is that? And we're like, I don't know. We can't get rid of it, though, because apparently it's been here for 50 years, so <laughs> it'd be sacrilege. It's like Jesus and this tree. I don't know what's going on, but anyway, but go out and put your thumbprint on it. It'd be really cool, you know, just to have all those thumbprints and make it in the tree. Uh, my, my brother, I was talking to him last week, and he said, and he goes, how about for Christmas? Instead of buying each other gifts, we just, like, planting roots donations as well. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> my, my niece was here last service, and I, he probably, like, apparently he didn't tell her, because she's sitting, like, right there, and she's like, what? 
And I'm like, I will buy you a gift, I promise. But it's all these great things about planting roots and stuff. It's, it's kind of amazing. I am, I am so glad to be a part of this with you guys. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. And we did these a little bit different. If you've been around uh, before... Uh, we started the Planting Roots Guide. We would do all the questions on the back and just have plain notes in the middle. What we're ca- trying to do for the next couple of weeks, see if how it works out, especially you, you GC leaders who can pay attention to this. The questions are now actually on the inside. We have a little paragraph and then questions about that and a paragraph and some questions. So you can kind of walk through that a little bit differently. And so hopefully that will, you know, if you went through the Planting Roots devotionals, that will help you to kind of keep in line with that again and keep going. Uh, a bunch of announcements on the back. Now, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and the verses and all that goes along with today's message. All right, why don't you stand with me? You're reading God's Word. This is James chapter 4, verse 12. It says, There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who fully entrust ourselves to you. And that we don't feel like we have to manipulate or control those around us. Because we are people who rest in your hands and we rest other people in your hands as well. Teach us to live lives that honor you uh, by how we trust you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Sermon on the Mount. This is week 35 and today we enter chapter 7. It's the final countdown. One person. First service, they all started doing it with me. Maybe that's because they're, they're old like me. But anyway, you know, it's like, yeah. anyway, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're at, uh, which means we only have about 10 or 11 weeks left to, be, uh, to get through the Sermon on the Mount, which again means 10 or 11 weeks left for till Christmas or planting roots. Uh, uh, you know. this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the most compact and longest straight teaching narrative ever recorded by Jesus, and we have been in this all year so far. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus talking about the blessings of God that he has bestowed upon his people. Blessed are those poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, blessed, blessed. We spent four months just talking about that, because when we understand first the blessing of God that God has first blessed of us, our lives are lived differently. We become salt and light in the world. We begin to worship truly and rightly as God calls us to. Then out of that, Jesus starts talking about some negative things that pull us out of relationship with him. And so he talks about lust and anger and the breaking of oaths. And then he goes into the beginning of chapter 6 and he starts talking about some positive things that pull us out of relationship with him. We focus on those and not him. And he talks about prayer and fasting and even charity. Because when we focus on those and not him first, we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. So Jesus then moves into the Lord's Prayer. And it talks about the fatherhood of God and who God is. And it resets our focus. And then after that, he talks about giving and treasure. And then after that, he starts talking about uh, faith and doubt and how those things sometimes can actually go together. And this leads you all in to chapter 7 in the beginning where we start. And this is every pothead's favorite verse in the Bible. Other than God gave every seed-bearing plant to man. Okay, so we're going to read through it, and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. 
And this is a really short paragraph, and it morphs into all sorts of things. It starts with judging, moves into logs and specks, and it morphs into dogs and pigs and pearls and attacking. And a lot of times people read the scriptures, and they don't understand what's going on, so they read it and they go, oh, okay, Jesus. And they just kind of keep moving on. They don't really figure out what's in there. I mean, th- their first question should be when you read something like this, does this all fit together? You should ask, you know, is this just random pearls and pigs and judging? Is Jesus just throwing things at the walls, hoping something's going to stick? Or is there a flow to what's going on here? Is there a flow to what he is saying and doing? Does Jesus have an internal logic to what he's saying that ties pigs and logs and specks and all together into judging? Could it make more sense as a whole? And the answer to that is... Yes, it always does. And it starts with what we looked at before, understanding right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. So, let's walk through this. Judge not that you be not judged. You ever heard someone quote that? Oh, judge not, man. Judge not. You're just like, dude, seriously? You know, and then you want to say something really negative when you start judging them. But you're like, oh, okay. I mean, I, so many times people ask this, and I'm like, they have no idea what, what that even means. I mean, sometimes people say that to you, and you're like, that cannot be what they think it means. And it's so familiar because we've heard it so many times. Now, the word judge is the Greek word krino. It's used three different ways in the New Testament. And I'm going to show you all three ways that it is used. And then we're going to come back to Matthew, and I'm going to ask you the question of which way you think Jesus is using it. Sound like fun? Okay, even if not, we're doing it anyway, so whatever, okay? Open to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Uh, because, again, you know, when people say, don't judge, you ever think, I'm pretty sure I should be judging this right now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So there are some circumstances where it's right to judge, and somewhere it's not. So we're going to look at the context of that. Now, Titus is written by Paul to a, to a young guy named Titus, hence the name, Titus, okay? Titus chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says this, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, do you know what word in there is the word krino? It's the word decided. It's the word decided. So one of the uses is to decide, to determine, to resolve, to make a decision about something. It's like, am I, you know, is it, am I going to do this on the left or the right? Am I going to paint my house a light color or a dark color? Am I going to make this road straight or am I going to make it crooked? It's making a decision. Is Jesus saying you shouldn't make any decisions? No. And I know some young guys are like, oh, that'd be really great if Jesus would say that because then I have to make any decisions and my mom or my wife could take care of me my entire life. It'd be, so, it'd be so wonderful. But honestly, if you make a decision not to make a decision, well, you made a decision not to make a decision. It's called a performative contradiction. It's called catch-22, okay? So Jesus isn't saying don't make any, any decisions because if he did, then the verse would be like, don't make decisions because then decisions will be made about you. And it would make no sense whatsoever. Open to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This is after Jesus has been arrested. Uh, he is going from official to official to official. He ends up in front of a guy named Pilate. Uh, Pilate has the Jews in front of him with Jesus, and this whole discussion takes place. John 18, 31. It says, Pilate said to them, that's to the Jews, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now, judge and law are going together there. This is now referring to a court of law. So the second thing that we look at, Carino, it shows a courtroom and a bunch of laws. Is Jesus saying, do away with the courts? Like if someone steals something from you, well, you must not need it anyway. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying at all. I mean, so in context, he is not saying, don't let any court judge someone because they might judge you too. That's not what he's saying. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, the third study of Crino takes place here. Uh, the first part of verse 5 uses the word. The latter part of the verse actually begins to explain what it's referring to. So 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says this. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. This is Crino, nothing before the time, before the Lord comes. So that Crino is doing with the Lord will do this. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes. This is the word for motives of the heart. So the third use of Crino is something that God does. It involves the darkest places of our souls where all of our motives lie. Is that something you and I can judge? Or is that only something God can judge? That's something only God judges. Something only God does. So uh, go to John chapter 7. I'll show you another instance of this third type. Actually, it's the first and the third type both in here. Uh, John seven twenty four. Jesus says this. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So it starts with the first type and ends with the third type. Okay? Now go back to Matthew. Judge not that you be not judged. Is he saying, don't make any decisions? Or is he saying, get rid of the court system? Or is he saying, let God be the one who judges other people's hearts and their motives? C, number three, right, whatever one, those both work. Now, when Jesus talks about it in this way, this is in regard to how we can raise ourselves up while lowering somebody else. It's lowering someone else by making decisions and evaluations and critiques about the motives of their heart that put yourself above them. It's you point out how they fall short and how you would never do that because you are so much better than they are. To judge in this context is to confuse essence and identity. It's to confuse actions, what somebody did, with who they are in the core of who God made them to be. It, what it does is exposing motives and actions of the heart, and it tells you that is always God's job. That's what 1 Corinthians 4 tells you. And if you judge in a creno way, like Jesus says, it confuses actions and essence. So what that means is, imagine somebody did something destructive or dishonest. And then we then make a declarative statement about their identity, their worth before God, that they are less than us. We don't just say, that thing was messed up. We say, man, you are worth nothing. You are less than less. You are just awful because I would never do that. That's what he's saying. It's like maybe sometimes in your life, maybe you've done something wrong or stupid or totally deranged. You know, if you had it to do over again, you would not do it again. Anybody have something like that in their life? I think all of us, right? Yeah, okay, all of us? Good, good, you're human, got it, okay. You know, but maybe somebody found out about that thing, and then they start to treat you in a way that they didn't just deal with the action. They start to pull you down, like, on a soul level, make judgments about your whole self. You know what I'm saying? All right, you ever do that to somebody else? Of course you do. We all do. If you're married, of course you do. Remember five years ago when you did, it's like, yes, I remember. How can I forget you? Remind me all the time, you know. (laughs) Jesus says, judging in this context is assuming God's position of evaluating the worthiness of his creatures. Judging in this regard is you trying to do God's job. You're trying to order things your way. It's taking a role that is not yours. Now, what's amazing in this is Jesus just doesn't leave it there. As he does, he always goes deeper. And so it goes into the next section about logs and specks. So he says, don't take God's job. Don't confuse action and essence. Then he goes into, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, I read that and none of you laugh. And this is actually very funny in, for Hebrew culture. They'd be like, oh, that is hilarious. It's, okay, so I'm going to make this make sense to you, okay? All right. Joy, we've all been talking. And you've got something in your eye. And you know what? I have been appointed the spokesman to come and talk to you. Because... I just don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there is this glaring thing hanging off the front of your face. 
do you even understand what's going on for you, Joy? I am here to fix it. So, you're sweating that thing, too. Keeps bugs out of my eyes, though. This is the thing. Jesus is doing theater, okay? And he talks about a hypocrite. You know, hypocrite is a theatrical term. And so, this is the whole idea. He's doing a whole lot of theater. And people in that course would be like, that is hilarious. I get that. that. That's really funny. He's connecting with judging with logs and specs. It's this idea that to critique and criticize has roots in a far deeper impulse. It's that judging has, it's attempting to control somebody else by what you do with them, by how you interact with them. So that they will see how flawed they are and how you are not as flawed as they are. You critique someone because it better serves your purposes. So you criticize them or you shame them. Sometimes you can ignore them. Sometimes you speak against them. It's all these things. It's pushing someone down so they will conform to your will. Let me give you a couple examples of it and then we'll get to some harder, deeper ones. In it. Uh, so a lot of you guys are parents. So you've got these kids. And I see this happen a lot with you guys and your kids. So I'll just point it out. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm just saying, it's funny. Uh, your kid goes running off somewhere like, ah, and you're like, get in the car, we got to go. And your kid's like, ah, and you're like, get in the car, we got to go. And, like, ah, and you're like, fine, bye. I'm going to leave you. Now, you're not going to leave your kid. The kid knows you're not going to leave the kid. You're just, it's like, oh my. Ah. And, and if you were going to leave the kid, the kid would be like, sweet freedom. <laughs> you know what you do? I'm the parent, you're the kid, get your butt in the car, pick him up, put him in the car, boom, you're done. Don't play the game. It's all. It happens when kids start, when you start like that, kids start to get a little bit older. And some parents say, I'm not going to discipline or I'm not going to spank or I'm not going to do any of these things. And what you do then is instead of that, you start to shame your kid. Well, why can't you be better than that? Well, why can't you be like them? Or why can't you do this? Do you realize how dumb you are? Do you realize, you know, I can't even work with you because, because you just can't ever get it? And they start to shame their kids, trying to get their kids to do what they want them to do. And a kid has got to be like, now that I feel like total crap, I'm sure I'll just get better. You know, that's not how it works. Shame doesn't motivate. It doesn't motivate. And yet, extrapolate that out. And we use shame in all of our interactions. If we use it in our, with our spouses, we use it with our friends, we use it at our jobs, trying to get people to do what we want them to do. We use it all the time. A few years ago, my friend John, we were somewhere and he was walking out of this room and he had these gray socks on. And I was like, you going to wear those socks? So every time I said, that was really dumb. And, and, I, and, I sh- and he took off his gray socks. He said, get off my case, dummy. This is why Jesus, when he talks about all this stuff, he brings it down to things so that people can understand. It's like logs and specks and, and planks and things stuck in your eye when you're trying to get stuff out of other people's eyes. He talks about judging and moves to this odd picture of these telephone poles or you know, pole floaties in, in people's eyeballs that we start to think we are so much better than other people and we start to make summary judgments about them and that we are so much better. But we are all incompetent to remotely even do God's job. There's a study that was done a few years ago that showed the first sign of incompetence is our inability to perceive our own incompetence. We, we all deceive ourselves into thinking we're much more smart than we actually are. I mean, you may think, hey, I'm pretty smart until the time changes, and it takes you another half an hour to figure out how to change the clock in your car. I guess I'm not that smart. You know, we think we're all more talented than we are. I mean, just look at, like, the first half of any American Idol season when everybody's trying out. You're like, oh, my goodness. My mom said I was the best singer in the world. Well, your mom was dumb, you know. <laughs> 
Because she lets you go try out for American Idol and you can't sing. You know, we all think we're better. Now, nowhere does this inability to have an objective perspective come out more than in the spiritual realm where it affects our souls. I mean, think about this. When it comes to moral character and purity of heart, how many of us have ever really sat down and had serious thought about how our lives would grade out in front of a holy, righteous, good, and truth-telling God? This is why the most dangerous force in the world is not sickness or injury or bankruptcy. It is sin. Because even when I talk about judging, there are people who go, oh, yeah, I know someone who really needs to hear about this. I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to me. Sin is a word that is so downplayed in our culture. I mean, sin is like hot vacation spots. Like Las Vegas is sin city. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You got dessert menu items, which are all about, you know, simple titles. You know, the peanut butter binge or the chocolate challenge are like simple things. Really? And lying isn't? Really? Sin is like the deadliest force in the universe that will pull you away from who God is calling you to be. And we want to take away the word. Oh, let's not use the word sin anymore. Let's use, let's use something else. I mean, this is dumb. This is like trying to take the, away the word for cancer or depression because it's offensive. You know, we must identify and understand that which threatens life. And only sin can keep us from becoming the person God intends for us to become. All other challenges we face keep coming from the outside. Sin burrows its way inside. It wraps around your heart. It wraps around your soul. Sin wants to kill you. And we are all born into sin. In Christianity, we call this original sin. That we are born inherently sinful because of the fall. The church father Augustine said there is a fundamental moral stain that gets passed on to every human being even before they are born. And you go all the way back to when Augustine was writing. There's another guy named Plagius, and he didn't like the sound of this. He said, no, 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 no. Every human being is a blank slate, a morally neutral free agent. They have a clean shot at perfect innocence. And every time I read something by Pelagius, I think, man, he obviously never had children. <laughs> right? Because what's their first words? No and mine. See, we've got to be honest about ourselves to get that log out of our eye because we are not God's gift to the world. God is God's gift to the world. We went back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Was it like three months ago? <laughs> you know, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. That's why Jesus starts it off and resets our focus. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You must start by acknowledging that God is God and you are not. There is a realm that is unseen and beyond our material senses. That God rules and reigns over that realm as well as our physical realm. That God is real and moves everywhere. And that we are physical and spiritual creatures both. And when we ignore that other people are the exact same way, our lives are starting to cut off from what God intended us to be. That's why Jesus starts, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he goes on to talk about all these things. Forgive us our debts. That is laying your past before God. Give us this day our daily bread. It's laying your present before God. You know, deliver us from evil. That's, or what people will do. It's laying your future before God. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, has walked us in a brilliant way to get us to the core of entrusting ourselves to God. That is what the center of it all is. I think it's a practice that if we began to live, our lives would have less anxiety. We'd have a little less worry because we understand that God is the one who carries us. It's like a deep breath perspective. Like when something crazy is going on, like uh, I know James and Haley a couple weeks ago had a baby, right? And I'm sure it's like, oh, ooh, pain. It's like breathing. <gasps> Reset. That's, it's like a deep breath perspective when something's freaking out. And you just, you take a second and you think and reset. Jesus is trying to reset us. God, we can entrust our lives to him. What causes you to get anxious? I mean, what, what conflicts do you have in your life? You can leave all of those things in his capable hands. You can be grounded. You can be centered. 
Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, it, it talks about someone who is grounded and centered in God, and it says he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. It doesn't mean that storms don't come, but it means that that, that thing may bend, but it's not going to break. Jesus invites his followers to live in a world, in our world, in a way that's totally different than anybody else. And very few people, even those who call themselves Christians, live that way. I mean, sometimes there are people who have all the right bumper stickers, say all the right words, they got all the right t-shirts, but they're deeply lost, and they're totally anxious, and they're anything but grounded in who Jesus calls them to be. And so what Jesus does is he invites people to live in simple, humble trust that everything actually can be okay. And he traces what happens when we fail to trust ourselves to God. We start to judge and manipulate and control those around us. We don't even look at our logs anymore. All we see is everybody else's specs and start dealing with those and talking about those. It goes back to even what we looked at, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, right before we started planting roots, where Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? It's Jesus, again, trying to center us that God takes care of everything, and he will take care of you. He explores the dark side of not trusting God. And then he goes directly into judging. And sometimes people read this and they go, well, you know, what does that have to do with judging? What I eat, what I drink, what I wear? Everything. Because it's about all of our lives. Judging is about how you relate to other people. In the Sermon on the Mountain is entrusting all of our lives to him. So entrust yourself to God, what, you will, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. And it naturally flows into uh, entrusting others to God where you stop judging them. Because if you don't trust God, you're going to be plagued with the desire to control others because judgment is rooted in our desire to have control. And so Jesus, he starts with judgment, logs, specks, and he goes to pearls because it's all related. He says, don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. I know all the pictures of Jesus, he's always carrying a sheep and not a dog or a pig. So it's like, what does that even mean? And sometimes you read that and you think, I have no idea what the Bible's talking about. I have never been tempted to go out to the countryside on a date and be like, here, piggy, piggy, have, have some pearls. <laughs> but you know, I don't know if you ever read the book of Leviticus. You know, there's some stuff in there It's like, why would God need to tell his people to dig a hole to go poop? I mean, it's, it was in there for a reason, apparently, because people, it was an issue, okay? So there's stuff in there. So sometimes you look and they go, well, was that an issue with people throwing pearls to pigs? Contextually, Jesus is being brilliant here. A pearl is a good thing. A holy thing is a good thing. And so a pig or a dog being thrown something like that, they're being thrown something they don't comprehend, that they don't understand. They don't know what the value of it actually is. A pig's going to look at a pearl and go, what am I supposed to do with that? I guess I'll eat it and poop it out. I mean, because that's all they know what to do with it. See, in the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is why it has to go together. Jesus invites us to entrust ourselves to God. We're not entrusting ourselves to God. We are plagued with worry and anxiousness. And then so you get out of that, you stop judging people. Then he invites us to entrust others to God. Stop doing logs and planks and all these negative things to get people to come in line with you. But then he also says sometimes in manipulating other people, you use positive things to do that too. Like pearls. Like pearls. Like, you know anybody who maybe grew up in a Christian home you know, said, oh, I love Jesus, and they went to all the camps, all the youth groups, the rallies. When they turned 18, 20, 25, whatever it is, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. The pearl could actually be the Christian faith when it's shoved down someone's throat. You know, the good thing becomes unappreciated. And Jesus says what they will even do is they can even trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. The words attack you can mean tear you to pieces. I mean, do you know somebody who grew up, you know, in a Christian home, they went to all the camps, said they love Jesus, and now their sole job, it seems, is to want to pull everybody away from the faith, to tear down Jesus and everybody else's life? Have you ever seen family systems where someone is showering someone else with gifts and resources, all these pearls? 
and someone just responds violently and the giver can't understand why. Oh, I was just trying to give. Well, maybe part of the giving action is in some form manipulation. And maybe the giver isn't even aware of it. Because there's so many ways you can go with this. Jesus says this is why it starts with self-examination. You've got to allow God to go through your life, pull out your logs and your pool floaties. And, and so you can see clearly to what's going on. We all need self-examination. We need to see all the places we don't truly entrust our lives into Jesus' hands. And then that will show us how we're not entrusting other people into his hands as well. It shows all the ways we'll try to manipulate people to get them to fall into our line, positively, negatively, and passively. And I am not saying you can't ever educate people. I'm not saying you can't ever give to others or anything like that. It's the motive behind it. Because sometimes it isn't about them. It's about us. It's about us trying to have what we want because we're so insecure. We must entrust all of ourselves to Jesus first before we do anything else in the world. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount, again, is all about. Now, why is this important? I'll give you three things as we end. Number one, entrusting ourselves and others to Jesus is the only way we will ever help anybody. It's the only way you'll ever help anybody. Jesus is not saying, never say anything to anyone. Let anyone do what they want. You know, uh, do no harm and do whatever you want besides. That's not what he's saying. That is not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, in verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You actually can be the type of person who's able to help others around you. You can try to get specks out of other people's eyes. But it must first come from a place of dependence upon Jesus first. When the hard work of log removal has been done in your own life, we help others first by asking, God, are there any logs in my own eyes? And if someone comes up to you and they confront you about something, your first thing shouldn't be, judge not. Your first thought should be, is there any truth in this? There may not be truth in it. But your first thought should be, is there truth in this? Second thing, entrusting ourselves and others to Jesus happens when we give up control. When we stop having to be in control of everything. There's going to come a point where you, know, you can no longer control your kid. They're going to be 18 or 20 or 40 and move out. <laughs> You've got coworkers you can't control. You can't control your spouse in the first place. You've got to realize you can't make anybody do anything. So what you do is you entrust yourself to God, and then you offer to help somebody else. Is there anybody in your life you've been trying to get to do what you want? Jesus says you start with your own sense of powerlessness and brokenness, and then after Jesus works on you, then allow you and him together to go work and start on them. Thirdly, entrusting ourselves and others to Jesus is the only path to true freedom. You will never be free when you're trying to manipulate and control everybody around you. I mean, you can love and do anything for another person, and they are still also free to do what they want. You've got to live in the tension of that. Talk to a guy after first service today, and he's got a kid. His kid's like 30 years old, and he's totally messing up. He's ready to go back to jail again. And the dad's like, I would die for my kid. I want him to give up all of this garbage and entrust his life to Jesus. But in reality, that kid is in God's hands. He is in God's hands. And by trying to manipulate the kid and do all these things, he sort of started to make it worse. And trust yourself and that kid into God's hands and then move into the ways that Jesus calls you to step into it. You lay everything at the cross. God's timing, God's way. So what do we do? What can we do? Well, this again goes back to the Lord's Prayer, our Father in Heaven. Prayer is the closest you come to being able to influence somebody at their deepest level. You can actually go with God into the deepest place of another person because between you and the deepest part of another person always stands jesus the best way to affect somebody else is talking to jesus so that's where you go talk to jesus now i like you have difficult people in my life they're called members of element 
No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. At the shoe pits. No, whatever. Um, but I got this person in my life, and he drives me crazy. Just drives me crazy all the time. Uh, always thinks they're right. They're always rude about it. You know, it's, I know it sounds like me. Could be you, but, you know, whatever. Um, and but I know I had, to, had this really deep conversation with this person, and so I, I didn't know what to do. I was a little anxious about it, so I started to pray. And, you know, I, I prayed for, for them. I prayed for me. I prayed for our conversation. And in the end, I realized I didn't actually need to control the outcome. I didn't have to make the other person agree with me. I didn't even have to do the talk that well. I just had to show up and do what God was calling me to do because the rest was up to him. When Jesus becomes our center, we become less afraid of other people. We become less anxious about what he calls us to do. We become more bold in what he does call us to do. We become less controlling of other people as well because we let God be the judge because he is the only good judge. We lay all of our lives before God. That's how we're supposed to live, fully entrusted to him. Jesus says, stop trying to do God's job. Stop trying to do God's job. Because if you got the performance review, you would grade out as F, okay? Because you're not very good at being God. So just just stop it. And Jesus essentially says, the more we judge, the more miserable we are going to become. The more miserable we will be. This is why the cross is where we find freedom. Because it's where we set our logs and our specs and our past and our present and our future and ourselves and our others before God and entrust everything to him. Because it's all about surrendering life to who he is. Understanding what he has done. Because the heart of the gospel is that you and I were so blind that we were lost. We had logs and pool floaties shoved so far in our eyes we had no idea where we are going. And we're wandering over here, and God's like, okay, I'm going to come and redeem you. And he comes down, and he comes in the form of Jesus Christ, and he dies on the cross to pay for our sins. He rises from the dead to pull the pool floaties out of our eyeballs. It sets us on the path. And this is freedom, because now we're not wandering alone. Our God leads us and guides us and loves us and takes us where he needs us to go. And we trust him in that. We entrust all of our life to him. This is why we come to communion every single week here. And it's not something we pass around to you. It's something you actually have to get up and do. It's a response to what God has done. And so you get up and you break that cracker like his body has been broken for you and I. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that has been shed for you and me. So that we can be a free people. A people who live in the redemption that he has so graciously given to us. And we, in turn, get to entrust everybody else to him as well. And we don't have to live anxious or worry-filled lives because everything is entrusted to him. The band's going to come up. Our band of four today. (laughs) We're going to do a couple songs here. And as we do these songs, I invite you to take communion. Uh, I invite you to pray with one of the deacons or elders in the back. I mean, maybe you're in a spot where you feel like you've been judged all the time. And then maybe today you're realizing you simply judge a lot of other people as well. And maybe you need to pray with somebody about that to, to understand what's going on there. You know, they would love to pray with you. You know, they'd love to pray with you about anything. But if that's where you're at today, talk to somebody about it. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving simply part of our worship. Again, we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. And so we get up and we do that. There's food in the back, and the reason we put food there is so that you guys can connect to each other because we also worship God by how we fellowship with one another. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest ways that God teaches us how to grow is puts us in relationship with other people. Life would be so much easier if you didn't have to deal with other people. Life would be so much easier if you didn't have to deal with you, too. You know, it's, it's just what it is. Sometimes you look at other people and you're like, oh, they drive me nuts. And they're probably thinking the exact same thing about you. 
And so it's something that God puts us in relationships because it will teach us how not to judge. It teaches us how to forgive, how to let you know, God judge the motives of the heart. It's not that we can't say to somebody, hey, man, that thing was totally messed up. You know, you need to apologize. You need to go take care of that. I'll help you with that. I'll step into it with you. But we cannot anyway look at somebody as less than God made them to be. So we understand that God is the ultimate judge. And relationships teaches that so well. So grab something to eat, meet somebody else, maybe go through some of the questions in the, in the, in the notes, and maybe start to develop some deeper relationships where you can ask some of those hard questions too. Because our God is good. He is amazingly good to us. And rather than leaving us, you know, with a bunch of pool floaties stuck in our eyes, he has pulled them out so we can see clearly. And for for some reason, we are people who want to just shove those pool floaties back in our eyes all the time, you know. But God's like, out of your eyes, clear freedom, live a life that honors him and his image and those around us because we entrust everything to him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to live lives that honor you rightly and correctly. How to live lives that show other people who you are by how we love you and how we love them. Father, we want to be a people that bow our hearts and and bend our knees to your righteous judgment. That we begin to understand that we are not good judges people's hearts and souls and that all lays in your hands as that you would teach us the proper things and the proper ways to call things into the light while still loving on the back side of it teach us to be those who can live without eyes full of logs and pool floaties, but eyes that see what you want us to see and ears that hear what you want us to hear, lives fully devoted to your grace and your goodness. Teach us to love and honor you the way you've called us to love and honor you, the way you've connected all these things throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that our relationship with you is, in essence, tied up with our relationships with others. That in one sense, they go hand in hand. That we can't despise your creation while saying that we love you. So teach us to love you in a way that we honor all that you call us to honor and we bestow grace in all the places you call us to bestow grace and live lives as children of our great and good Father. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.